Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe, October 2nd, 2009. Biota Live is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. And if you would like to participate in a Biota Live, we record every other Friday at 8 p.m. Pacific, for more information on how you can participate, either in the chat room or by calling in live, also go to biota.org slash podcast. Well, last episode, I did announce the possibility of two guests coming into the future. I'd like to confirm the dates associated with them. On October 16th at 8 p.m. Pacific, Tom Ray will be on. He will be discussing 20 years of Tierra, what he's doing currently, uh, how he got into Tierra, and basically what he's learned from the whole experience. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity to talk with really one of the founding fathers of an aspect of artificial life and, and see what he's doing currently, seeing what his advice is for the contemporary artificial life community and also his kind of sense of things going forward. We've referred to Tom Ray pretty frequently through the Biota Lives to date. Uh, his work associated with Tierra is, is quite seminal and also something which I think still motivates a good degree of thought uh, even to this day. I think most recently when we had William R. Buckley on, he discussed Tierra as being the best possible model for the Evo Grid. On October 30th at 8pm Pacific, Mark Badeau will be on and Mark will be discussing a wide variety of issues associated with um, artificial life in industry and artificial life in academia. But before we get to that, hello, Gerald. How's that? Always good to talk to you, Gerald. It's been quite some time since we last spoke, a few months at least. Yeah, it's been a, been a nice summer. Ah, so you've been enjoying the summer rather than calling into Bioth Live. That's right. It's, uh, it, it makes it a little difficult because of the timing and everything. So when you're on vacation, you don't really want to get up at uh, 5 a.m. Yeah, I seem to recall you calling us from Florida last year when you were on vacation yeah. in Florida. Yeah, this year we were uh, we were not in America, so. Ah, uh, well, speaking of of old friends to Biota Live and old friends of yours, um, I've been having some correspondence with Justin Lyon, and I've debated doing an extraordinary Biota Live with Justin just to do a catch up. Folks who have been listening to Biota Live for some time will be familiar with Justin Lyon because I think he appeared pretty heavily in probably the first uh, the first. I don't know, 15-odd Biota Lives that were recorded and then pretty well dropped off the map. Well, Justin's been very busy. I've been exchanging email with him. And my hope is actually to have him on prior to Mark Badeau because Justin still uh, still really represents himself out in the industry as a, a champion of the, uh, you know, the, the potential for artificial life in industry. And I think he has a number of interesting war stories associated with the stuff that he's been doing over the past 18 months. And it'd be nice to have... Justin on prior to Mark Badeau so we can put some of Justin's questions to Mark specifically as we talk about what will happen to artificial life in industry in the near future and even the distant future because it's a topic that Mark Badeau uh, talks about <laughs> writes on quite a bit. So for the news and notes, speaking of about writing about things, this has been in the news and notes for the past few weeks. However, we've had other news and notes that have kind of covered it. But I think now is the, the right time for the artificial life community not to go underground, as Bruce Damer and others have been discussing, but to actively write, to actively participate, to put their voices out there. And, uh, I mean, the beauty of writing is that you can generate chapters which you kind of leave simmering for, you know, six months to a year, and then perhaps the right book comes around and you could just submit your chapter. So I would encourage all in the Biota community to, to be using this time to either write 
or to be developing their own artificial life projects to either assist folks such as Gerald and myself with our respective projects or consider developing your own project, irrespective of the general bleakness of the economy, the hobby of artificial life is still uh, something which I think both uh, you and I return to on a regular basis, Gerald. In terms of the, the past few months, uh, how have things been going with Darwin at Home? And I, I remember talking about Darwin at Home last Biota Live. Can folks actually access some current source code, or can they contact you about getting some source code if they're interested? Yeah, the source code's all online at uh, at SourceForge, and I've got a link in a blog post from a couple months ago, so it's it's pretty easy to find. It's not actually in a state right now where I'd like to uh, have a lot of people, uh, you know, wanting to try things out because it's not quite ready yet. There are a number of things that can be tried out, but only if you're really a hardcore developer. Right, which kind of, I mean, that's that's the SourceForge audience anyway, really, isn't it? I mean, by the time someone's on SourceForge, you'd hope that they had some programming chops. Yeah, although SourceForge is not all that discriminating. In terms of the general narrative that we've tried to put through Bias Live, the, the hobby of artificial life is, you know, something that you can uh, put down over the summer months and return to um, through the winter months. You can do it whenever you, you want to do it. And, I mean, certainly the, the interest of uh, folks such as Eric Burton and, and other uh, people who participate in Bias Live today seems to indicate that the Hobbyist community isn't going anywhere soon. In fact, Eric uh, emailed the list. I see him in the chat, too, saying that Critterdink had done remarkably successfully in its recent release. So I think the uh, the general news for the artificial life community is to uh, to put out releases occasionally for your stuff. And, uh, yeah, and, and the people will come. So we have Dick Gordon in the chat room this evening, and Dick has also been asking in, in recent months to discuss what is going to happen with regards to Biota 5, the possibilities associated with Biota 5, and, and the general feedback. Gerald, do you think you'll, uh, you'll be going to A-Life 12, the conference, next year? Where was it going to be? Oh, oh you're all, it's somewhere in Scandinavia. I want to say it's in Denmark, but I always get it wrong. Yeah, I thought it was Denmark as well. I, if, uh, if I can possibly go, yeah. Because, I mean, Bruce Damer is on track to, to hold a track. He's going over there, I think, in a couple of weeks uh, to hold meetings with uh, Rasmussen et al. at Flint uh, in terms of the, I guess, the EvoGrid-related track, which will also include things that are EvoGrid-like and potentially, I mean, folks such as yourself as well. I mean, if you had the opportunity to, to speak at Artificial Life 12, I'm sure you'd go. Well, absolutely, because I will. By that time, I will certainly have something to uh, to talk about and show. Because I'm getting close to uh, to uh, an online game sort of scenario, so that'll be interesting to show. Certainly, and I think there's a lot of interest currently in in artificial life games. I mean, I think the the, the general consensus was that Spore was a bit of disappointment, but we have an active community here uh, that you know can generate components that are like Spore. two topics this evening, uh, one related to procedural movement and the other related to publicity. Gerald, which would you like to talk on first? Publicity. So the background with regards to this is that uh, Bruce Damer had a, an article published in the New York Times this week. And through 
you know, through my connections with regards to Bruce, I had both a, a public and a private discussion with him associated with what these kind of articles mean in a kind of broader sense associated with the artificial life community, how we can tune our uh, particular sites for a degree of stickiness to extract the perfect developers, the perfect folk who are going to be actively contributing to something like Biota Live or the broader biota community and really Developing an artificial life simulation isn't just about writing code, it's about kind of tuning the stickiness in order to get uh, particular users interested and involved. And I think there was a lot of feedback that we received both through uh, Bruce's respective Evo Grid mailing lists and also general discussion associated with, uh, with Peter Newman and Bruce associated with what the, the Evo Grid site currently looks like. I mean, Gerald, last year you had, uh, you had a, you know, a relatively big piece in in was it Boing Boing that covered Darwin at home? Yeah, it was just a, an article in Boing Boing that pointed to a video and that's all it took. But, uh, it's, uh, it was a real wake-up call because I figured uh, if I uh, if I get it to a point where I've got a, a sort of a tested game with a with a good number of people playing around and uh, and it's all starting to work, then uh, trying to get that kind of attention again. And uh, succeeding should really uh, bring a wave of people. Yes, I think it's an interesting problem, and it's certainly something that I tracked through the probably 2002 through to 2004, the development with Noble 8. I was very interested in this kind of new science of website stickiness and how one could particularly tune. Um, I mean, if, if people are familiar with web stats, the numbers of the people that stay on your site between 15 minutes and on. So 15 minutes, I think it goes up to two hours plus uh, on your website, and you really want this percentage number to grow. Now, typically, it's never going to be more than about 10 or 15% of your total uh, you know, viewers to your site, but it's quite interesting actually tracking the way people look at a, a website, and particularly a website associated with artificial life. You can really run ideas of maybe three to five different demographics that you think will be hitting the site, you tune based on these results. And it's this idea really as artificial life developers that we have all this kind of tuning and, and stuff that we do just as background in terms of creating an artificial life simulation. And then perhaps we should consider actually using the same methods that we use in software with regards to actually tuning the way the information is, is presented. And the feedback that I gave to to Bruce and Peter Newman was that over that period, I really tuned it almost like a game. I mean, I was getting monthly stat updates. I was looking at the pages people weren't looking at. Why weren't they looking at it? How could they move through this information? I think in stark contrast to this very organized putting down theories and hypotheses and testing them against what was actually happening on the website, you've, you've taken a far more laid back view with regards to this, Gerald, haven't you? In a way, yes, but in a way, uh, not at all, because um, my focus for a long time has been to create a, a game scenario. So that's been, uh, you know, the, the the core of a lot of the thinking. And, and in fact, uh, you know, developing the software, uh, a significant part of the story is to uh, to make it attractive to people. So uh, it actually ends up being uh, being. A significant portion of the code because you know the the devil's in the details on the front end so uh, and especially for an online game you've got to take care of network traffic and everything like that so it's you know it's it's a big part of my challenge so in a way i'm spending a lot of my time on it certainly and i, I actively check jerem's pro progress as well because i mean he's someone who's both in the artificial life community and also the ind independent games community and 
a lot of the interesting tweaks that he had to do with regards to you know his recent award-winning game and also I think the sequel that he's working on relates to these relatively simple metrics. And I mean, folks who are interested, who are starting out developing artificial life, I think SourceForge actually offers a lot of these metrics as well in terms of tracking statistics. But if you track that group of people that spend... 15, 30 minutes plus on your site, this is a group of people that will typically move into joining mailing lists, move into broader discussions, start listening to Biota Live and related additional material. Uh, Bruce and I were having some discussion today about the role that Biota Live has played in the EvoGrid development. And the point that I made is that the listeners that we have to Biota Live, the hundreds of, of folk who tune into Biota Live on a regular basis, bridging more who tune in on an occasional basis, these are really already the hardcore few. And there's a, actually quite a large, a broader community of people who are well aware that artificial life is out there and certainly very pleased with the work that the artificial life community is doing, but they're not active participants in any way. So you start developing these theories, which I've communicated with other artificial life developers and got some kind of community agreement on about the actual numbers of people. And my question back to Bruce was, having done these kind of experiments, I mean, Boing Boing is a perfect outlet because people are just in some regard, on a lunch break, or they're, they're in a, I'm collecting a series of bits of information kind of thing, and to click on a video or interact in that kind of environment is probably the most passive component as opposed to reading a three-page article and then deciding whether or not they're going to click onto a link. And it's interesting tracking the results of the New York Times article that Bruce had published versus the Guardian article, which is just a single paragraph. And there seem to be more people clicking directly through to the site through the Guardian article in some instances. And the follow-through associated with these people is very interesting. But as I thought about this, I mean, particularly with regards to the Rushkov article, I, I credit the Rushkov article as something that really got me to the US for a long period of time, facilitated a move, but didn't necessarily put me in front of people, you know, that I was working with associated with startups, but was an immense motivator just in a single article. So I, I do believe very strongly that single articles have the power to do immense change associated with artificial life developers. But the same has to be said that these articles need a great degree of support on the other end, the sites, the information, the ability for people to kind of collect some sense associated with what the article is written about is, is really critical. And things like Biota Live, I mean, what we're doing here is really strengthening an already existing community. The folks who are listening in are already the small percentage of people that have a, a longer interest with artificial life than maybe just looking through a, a site or a few web pages for a few minutes in their lunch hour. In terms of these kind of metrics, I mean, you seem to describe the game that you're developing as somewhere on the cusp between kind of a, a casual game and potentially something like Steve Grant's Creatures in terms of the kind of obsessive user base. What, what's your own sense with regards to the demographics that you're trying to capture in this game, Gerald? I really don't know. It's, it's going to have to be a sort of a proof in the pudding because uh, in a way, I'm thinking it's, it's more a casual game thing. There's just, you know, to... to to be compulsively uh, playing with a with an online game, it has to be something that that's that's really personal. And I'm not sure uh, I'm really you know it doesn't make any sense to compete with all the things like social networks. Certainly, I mean, really, in this day and age, you want something that's completely compatible with social networks, even if it's just means of people saying send this out on on my Facebook page. I mean, I put little things like that on 
on the Noble Ape site for favourite the Noble Ape application, having Facebook groups that people can link through to and communicate on, and similarly with regards to the Biota site. So I think these things are always has to be seen as how can you use this in order to improve the general communication. I mean, even though the Biota Facebook group, people will occasionally post questions or thoughts through the through the group. So, I mean, I think you, you've got to actually leverage with the social networks and things like Twitter and these kind of things in this day and age as opposed to provide alternatives for them. The thing that fascinated me was that your site went down through the week and I pinged you through Twitter associated with the site going down, Gerald, and you commented that an architect in Brazil had been the first person to see it. Do you consider the architectural community as being a, one of the large demographics associated with Darwin at home? Oh, not, not at all. No, the, the architect community has got uh, very different interests at heart. So they they wouldn't be. Uh, I mean, there there are certain aspects of it that are going to be interesting because uh, I believe I'm going to be able to use um, Tensegrity towers as uh, as a kind of uh, flora. So people are, or you know, so you actually go and eat them. So making you know edible Tensegrities is probably going to spread the word a little bit about that kind of geometry, and maybe an architect would be interested in looking at that. Although the applications are, are sort of tricky in architecture. But the Buckminster Fuller community has also been, has also kind of followed you through the early Darwin home development. Do you, do you consider that? I mean, if, if there's such a thing as a demographic associated with Buckminster Fuller's work, do you think that is, is another group that you you have basically as of a kind of followers and interested folk? Oh, definitely, because um, I, I'm, I'm tending to think uh, that I will describe this effort as uh, as like the the, the bastard child of uh, Darwin and Fuller. You used to say Dawkins and Fuller. No, I didn't. I, I, I'm pretty sure you did, but that's interesting. That's interesting. I wasn't sure whether that was a change or a misquote, but Darwin and Fuller, very good. I mean, do you think the Dawkins community, do you think there's my sense associated with this? We have talked kind of sporadically about this, but I think I'm, I'm not sure whether the Dawkins community really has anything to do with artificial life anymore. I mean, do you get the sense that no, still a component? I'd... I don't know. I mean, the, 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 if, if there's thing, a thing called the Dawkins community, like he's a bestseller now, so there's you know literally millions of people who uh, who pay attention to his work. So uh, and you know way back in in his books a long time ago, he had something called uh, biomorphs. I don't know if you remember that from from one of the books. Yeah, and and uh, you know there's uh, there are enough aspects of of Darwin at home that uh, that could uh, resemble that. Like one thing I'm playing with now, I'm not exactly sure I'm going to include it, but. Uh, aesthetic selection for uh, for building the body that you uh, that you occupy so uh, this aesthetic selection uh, segment if it's part of the game will be very reminiscent of biomorphs so you know there's there's definitely a, a people exploring what evolution is and wanting to understand it in the abstract you know will probably really enjoy playing around with the thing and I, i'm sure that uh, that just the general sphere of it and you know the the building blocks used to put it together will uh, will catch the eye of the fuller community as well because uh, and there there is a significant fuller community i think in the, in the world it's just sort of uh, sparse and and, uh, and you know sporadic here and there so many things in the visuals will be reminiscent of fuller that uh, that i'm sure people will be uh, will be struck by that Yes, I'm not sure if you saw, um, I did a, an ape reality this week, a video ape reality, and Bruce and I have been discussing the use of video into the future as a way of describing the artificial life community to kind of the, the folk that aren't actually part of the community. I mean, certainly we, 
we think of a series of books in the 90s and potentially also television programs, documentaries that were made about artificial life then. I think the facilities are there for us now. And, I mean, you've been very successful uh, with regards to YouTube in terms of you doing kind of mini documentaries or at least explanations of what is going on. But through that video, I, I made reference to biomorphs. I held up a blind watchmaker and did a variety of other things. And I think this mechanism is another interesting way to kind of lure people into not necessarily the scholarship, but the background to the artificial life community and where we are now in terms of the books that have contributed. I noticed William R. Buckley's in the chat room and William sent an email uh, as, as per his style, a kind of instigatory email associated with the fact that if the artificial life community started doing better or more or actual fundamental research in the field, then we would get a lot more people into the community and actually the lack of people in the community or perceived lack of people in the artificial life community is a reflection on the work that is being done by the community currently. And it's not that I took exception to that, but certainly in the last uh, Biota Live we were discussing, I believe, Ramsticks and Polyworld and Brevet, and in terms of actually reading the comparative literature, it's fascinating to read about these these various simulations. I'm not sure if you've read uh, anything on Framsticks. Are you, are you, I mean, I know you're familiar with it in some regard, Cheryl, but have you done any deeper reading on Framsticks? No, not really, no. Because, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating stuff under there in terms of movement and neurons, and we'll get into this with regards to procedural movement. But I think as a kind of broader community, we're not very good at kind of doing comparative compare and contrast and actual discourse in terms of talking to the broader public about the amazing simulations that exist in a kind of compare and contrast way. It was interesting having Eric Burton on talking about the kind of post-polyworld simulations and also how polyworld is trying to move into the post-polyworld simulations arena as well. That, you know, internally as a community, we're very good at having this discussion and particularly with regards to actual references. It would be nice if we could actively communicate some of this uh, knowledge outside the community in a fashion that could kind of captivate people and give them a, a general sense of wonder. But I guess the feedback that you're giving, Gerald, is really we need to also as a community perhaps look above our turrets and outside our own individual projects at other projects for this kind of compare and contrast. William Buckley's comment is, uh, you know, every, everybody has their own point of view, and he's, uh, he's taken a very academic point of view. So he says, well, yeah, if you're going to entertain or if you're going to attract attention in my community, you're going to have to do this. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of focused on a, on a very much broader community, if you want to even call it a community. I mean, I see, for example, the potential of, uh, of having a Darwin at Home server set up in a classroom a lesson or you know something like that it just you know locally it'd be a really interesting uh, way to get some ideas across to kids for example so you know that's that's not exactly a, a demographic that uh, that would read a big paper so it, you know it's it, everybody has their different approach and you know this is this is hobby this is stuff that we do uh, compulsively in a way you know uh, <laughs> If, uh, you know, if an artist uh, goes on vacation, they, they take their pad along and they take their, uh, their charcoal and they, uh, they sit back on their vacation and they, they start uh, making some, you know, artworks because it's, it's fun. So, you know, I have the same sort of feeling when I'm on a vacation. I think, hey, I could write some code right now. What you're just 
describing is the nature of the artificial life hobbyist community. But with regards to, for example, getting artificial life into schools, there are ways that we can do that too. I mean, I was interested in working with an open source collective, uh, SEUL, which was the um, kind of open source and education collective that was gathering together a series of open source applications in order to move them into classrooms. And whilst the politics of that group kind of led to its own demise, I think there are certainly a number of ways that we as artificial life developers can approach these various communities, be they education, be they um, you know secondary schools or uh, academic institutions or these kind of things. I don't think that's eliminated to us through us being hobbyists, but it's just a matter of us taking the time to kind of get some... This whole notion of demographics, that basically if you say, I want school children to be a particular demographic of what I'm doing and potentially academics to be another demographic and potentially readers of uh, readers of Dawkins or fans of Buckminster Fuller to be another demographic, then there are ways that we can construct our simulations, particularly with regards to the information that we provide and also direct approaches, which can motivate that kind of direction as well. And certainly my discussion with Bruce and Peter Newman uh, over the past few days has been about the fact that we need to be active participants in this as opposed to passive. We need to actually start constructing these demographics, start creating thought experiments, start creating kind of testable hypotheses as, the, as we would do within our own simulations, but just move this into something which is getting teachers using Darwin at home and in, in classrooms or these kind of, of movements. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm really preaching to the choir with regards to you and the other listeners associated with Biota Live, but it was something that I wanted to put out into the community. Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, that it's important to in, important to like start with thinking about the demographics. That should, uh, you know, that in a sense, that's a side effect. Moving on, Gerald, into the, the topic of procedural movement, I was hoping to have Jeffrey Ventrella on this evening as well because he's, he's written a lot about a variety of, of procedural movement methods. But if you were to give a kind of personal definition, because there doesn't seem to be an exact definition of what procedural movement is, what would you say procedural movement was to a kind of bio-to-live listener? I'm not sure. Uh, that, uh, that's why I didn't really want to attack the subject right away, because uh, I'm not exactly sure what, what the meaning of that is. I mean, when, when you talk about spore being procedural, I think um, the word referred to how the, uh, how the, the creatures grew and how the, you know, the spatial structures were put together, that, that was procedural. That, that was my impression. I thought, you know, how would, how would you define uh, procedural movement? I mean, it's, it's either always procedural or it's never, I don't understand what, the, what it could mean. My use of the term actually came through kind of Spore and prior to Spore as it exists in the game development community. And again, I think Kerry Eric Burton and potentially others in the Biota Conversations mailing list, the definition was more tightly tuned associated with procedural animation. But the idea is that rather than having a pre-programmed set of movements or attaching balls to people and then filming them and seeing how the interactions can kind of map back in a very, you know, we have this data now, make, make the stick figures do exactly what the balls are doing when they're attached to people. Rather than doing that, creating a, a series of, well, the possibility of algorithms, almost like... Uh, almost like genetic programming really associated with kind of joints and movement and then seeing how that plays out. But really, I don't want to say it's just genetic algorithm related. I mean, the underlying ideas, and this is, comes through Jeffrey's primary work as well, 
don't necessarily have to be genetic, but there is some kind of interactive set of functions that one can establish associated with joints, and this doesn't have to be bipeds or even octopeds or even creatures with legs at all. This is just a series of, of algorithms that can be applied to kind of ball and stick socket joints and general movement, which are not, you know, not solely in the kind of genetic algorithm realm, but could be as, as a component. My thinking with regards to what you do with Darwin at home, specifically the, the kind of tintegrity movement, is the probably one of the more primitive implementations of procedural movement in terms of the fact that you have a sinusoidal function that rotates associated with the lengths of the tensegrities, well, it adjusts the lengths of the tensegrities in such a way that you actually get movement out of it. I mean, this isn't something that you set up as a, as a genetic algorithm experiment initially, is it? It's something that you had kind of prior tuning associated with. No, no, well, not really. I mean, in a sense, it's sort of a procedural backdrop, you could say in which uh, the evolution could happen. You know, you've got a whole bunch of uh, mindless robots uh, that are collaborating to, to uh, create locomotion, and uh, they coordinate by accident through uh, survival of the fittest. So that's, uh, you know, the, 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 fact that they, uh, the fact that they expand and, and contract, you know, could be seen, could be seen as procedural. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not procedural in the sense of... Uh, the design of a whole bunch of algorithms to do different types of things and then sort of uh, choosing among them uh, using the genetics. It's more just a, a basic backdrop and then let the genetics do the, do the sort of composing and uh, create the actual results. Certainly. And we have Eric Burton on the call. Hello, Eric. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So what would you define procedural movement as being? Well, everything is... Uh... I think I started hearing the term procedural movement connected with Spore and how it uh, will develop a walking animation for the models of the animals in it. I don't believe those animals have physics and are interacting with the world as such. If, you, if you're talking about A-life, everything in A-life is procedurally generated from the ground up, uh, not just the motion of uh, the animals, but all their behaviors. Speaking of procedural movement in, in an A-life is uh, almost redundant. By any that just depends on your definition are, of it, I think. Are, are procedurally generated in the sense that they're generated by the interaction of the GA, the, the fitness function in the environment, and uh, by the procedures that, uh, that drive each uh, animal as well. So, I mean, I think you made an important point with regards to physics, and certainly that was missing in my definition, but that is critical as well. The I, controllers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd want to make the distinction, I think. I mean, my own development of noble ape, I've moved from what would be considered, I guess, procedural movement in the, very, in the sense that you defined it, which I think is probably a little weaker than I'm trying to use it in, in the conversation this evening. But I, I agree that you're right. Everything in artificial life simulation, every movement associated with artificial life is fundamentally procedural. But the thing that interests me uh, is this kind of subclass of, of simulations which really come from... Carl Sims blockies on, on one side, uh, Brevet, Fram sticks, these kind of things, and also Darwin at home, with regards to the idea that the, the physical movement of the creatures relates to algorithms which are applied in terms of mo moving limbs, moving components, moving joints, moving things which are uh, visualized in the noble ape simulation up until this point the apes were not visualized specifically because of the 
complexity involved in the in the movement algorithms associated with moving the apes and the cats in terms of their limbs and joints, and particularly with regards to all the general emotive interaction that uh, Gerald seems to have a particular interest in talking about when we talk about mobile ape. So the idea is that there is probably a class of simulations within artificial life, particularly as you've noted with regards to physics, but also with these physical things like limbs. I mean, you couldn't say, in your broadest definition, you could actually say that Tierra had procedural movement, but in reality, the class of simulations that I'm more interested in talking about here are, like I said, Brevet, Framsticks, Blockies, Darwin at Home, these kind of things where the, the physical movement is represented in, in a physical form that has procedural elements, but also, as you've mentioned, physics. Yeah, I, th I think one of the interesting things to, that we should consider if you want to talk about uh, procedural uh, whatever in, in artificial life is, in a way, it's a measure of the degree of intelligent design. You know, you could, uh, you could theoretically say, uh, you know, in Spore, for example, all sorts of movements are taken care of and, uh, and we just evolve sort of variations on the theme and the themes are very well thought out and they're all cartoony in their in their uh, in their behavior so everybody loves them you know that that was the the, the spore theme but the interesting so, thing is when the environments get more complicated you can't really intelligently design balance you can't really intelligently design for the kind of chaos that you would get into in particular artificial life simulation environments this is where the whole kind of intelligent design argument i think breaks down Whilst you can optimize, even with regards to genetic algorithms, particular kinds of movement in particular kinds of environments, there needs to be something more than either on one extreme intelligent design or on the other extreme genetic algorithms associated with surviving moving environments, but also surviving things like an interaction between land and water and also changing textures. I mean, the genetic algorithm that had, had swum, for example, couldn't deal with quicksand particularly well. I mean, this is the nature of the, you know, the optimization that occurs in genetic algorithms, but there is a class of movement that artificialized simulations have which could potentially also be related to either, you know, reflexive intelligence to the cusp of this kind of where does intelligence actually start to exist in terms of things like balance, stability, kind of secondary sensing. I mean, it would be very difficult to write a, uh, either a genetic algorithm or a heavily intelligently designed artificial life entity that, for example, did cross-country cycling or these kind of things where the the conditions change so dramatically that the responses would need to be very sensitive in order to maintain balance characteristics. And this is the interesting thing that I see in this procedural movement class of simulations is that contemporary computation is very well designed for these kind of tuning and balancing algorithms to be applied. Now, do you understand what I'm saying in terms of this not being an intelligent design solution or a genetic algorithm solution, Gerald? Um, not exactly, no. The ability to achieve balance over an environment, it can't be de described as reflexive intelligence. It, it, it's something which exists outside the realm of reflexive intelligence. What do you mean by reflexive? You mean just uh, reacting to uh, things? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm talking about reaction time. That basically, when you ride a bike initially, when you learn to ride a bike, or when you learn to do things like surf, or when you learn to do anything that requires... This, this kind of stability over chaos, you will show the traits of reflexive intelligence very quickly. It's the ability not to have that reflexive intelligence which actually enables you to do these, these things. 
And there's a survival component which needs to exist in kind of complex artificial life simulation, which cannot be intelligently designed through exactly that reason. Yeah, well, and my approach in Darwin at home for, for a number of things that, that may uh, be may belong to what you're talking about is, is just to uh, delegate it to the player. So the idea is that uh, all you do is evolve your avatar, but you don't necessarily uh, watch it develop autonomy. But you also create an environment which is very much contrived for the kind of avatars that you're creating. I mean, that's, that's part of it as well. Well, it's a particular scenario, and um, it's, it's important for me to be able to define and explain everything from the ground up to the point of uh, where the, you know, the handover is done to the, uh, to the genetic mechanism. And uh, I kind of want this all to be sort of obvious. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the case that the, uh, the geometries have evolved out of nothing. There are certain things that I had to, had to create, but I stopped pretty quickly and I really try to define where it is I'm stopping. You know, something that, uh, that has all sorts of joint mechanisms, it has all sorts of uh, intentional ways of, of, of growing, and then once it's grown, the, the movements are pre-programmed to fit with what's grown. You know, that, that's, that would be what I would consider more procedural, where you're, uh, you're really uh, designing sections of it, you know, really doing a lot of intelligent design. So I try to uh, minimize the intelligent design I'm doing by, uh, by you know, going procedural to the point of creating very, very dumb building blocks that, that really couldn't possibly by any stretch of the imagination, achieve subtle things on their own, like uh, like locomotion. So these things are just you know they're just too small in scope to be able to handle the problem at hand, and then uh, make it obvious where that you know how how much design is involved getting to there, and then you know consciously stopping and uh, handing over to uh, to see what can actually evolve. So I mean I know this through through our correspondence and also discussions on Biota Live, but like many soft artificial life developers, you have a dream of actually seeing the physical reality of a, of one of your tensegrity forms in in reality. And I think the the transition between soft artificial life into hard artificial life robotics, in particular, is very fascinating with regards to these kind of problems. Because if you moved a, a Darwin at home form into the real world you could create environments that were sufficiently contrived for it to, to survive and move and these kind of things, but there would be a series of quite, quite simple real-world circumstances that the forms would not be ready for. I mean, is this what you're saying fundamentally? I don't think so. I mean, in relation to real-world forms is, is, uh, is a bit of a stretch, but uh, I'd be the first one to, uh, you know, given the right materials and the right hydraulics and whatever else, I'd be the first one to climb up on an elastic interval spider, you know, that's uh, evolved its movements in the software, but then responds to my, uh, to my uh, joystick uh, movements. And you two would rule the world. I can see it now, Gerald. But I mean, I think <laughs> this, this underlying idea is really central to a lot of soft artificial life. It's also what Mike Bedeau is appealing to with regards to the soft artificial life developers assisting wet artificial life, is the ability to move our simulations and software into an environment which is very real. And I think this is what interests me with regards to these kind of balance problems, these can you do it with intelligent design? My, my favorite example of this is just the wide variety of computer games that have existed, and particularly as the software developers, perhaps the ones we've created ourselves, where the interface and the interaction with the interface is never quite right. There's some kind of disconnect between 
the interface and, you know, the game and our interaction through that. And this, I think, is, is fundamentally the kind of clunkiness of intelligent design that when it comes to things that require non, non-reactive intelligence, things that require, you know, intelligence which is hard to describe in the context of intelligent design, of pre-programmed, of organised, of constructed then the whole thing falls apart, like the game interface kind of falls apart with regards to playing it. <clears throat> There's, you, could, you could find an explanation for that. I mean, in a sense, what you're trying to do then is, is develop things that have some kind of autonomy. I'm sure you'd admit that. And then once these things have an autonomy, then uh, you know, the question is, what's this person doing here? Certainly. And I mean, I think this, is, this came through when we had the medical transhumanist lady on visions of the evo grid i mean this view with regards to the future particularly with regards to kind of super intelligent machines or other entities always begs the question about you know will they keep us as pets what will our what will our future role be in this context my interest with regards to this discussion associated with procedural movement is that i think there is a quite an interesting middle ground here which can be explored within the context of artificial life which actually kind of describes this kind of survival-like sub-intelligence that certainly folks such as Roy Plotnick and, to a lesser extent, Jeffrey Ventrella have explored with their artificial life simulations. So I think there's potentially a third class somewhere between pure GA on, the, on one end and, and pure intelligent design on the other. In fact, I think it's probably many multi-dimensional possibilities where these two are not even in fact extremes but could be the, the same thing when you have a, a number of intelligent designers effectively acting like selection pressure. It's a big spectrum. I mean, you can you can go all the way from, uh, you know, you can design something all the way up to the, you know, the very icing on the cake and then and then have something something like artificial life happening at, at the very top level. Or at the other, you know, the other end you could go the, uh, the sort of Evo grid approach where you start with the chemicals and just wait for something to happen, you know, simulated chemicals. You, you try to create soup and, and see if something comes out of the soup. That's really at the end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, it's, there are lots more opportunities to, um, to reach a broader community because, you know, people are, are drawn to it because they're, they're familiar with some of the things that have been intelligently designed. I think the core idea behind artificial life is just sort of, is, is that, you know, you're you're approaching things in a kind of Malthusian way. You know, something something exists and it's capable of copying itself. So suddenly, there's a whole bunch of copies of it, and it fills the available space more or less. And then, because of the copying and because of a, a sort of an added error in the copying, there are variations on the theme, and uh, all the all the different individuals compete for for a particular goal. That's a way of doing computing, you could say, in the future when uh, when Moore's Law has hopefully continued and, and taken its toll and given us vast amounts of memory and, and vast amounts of distributed computing power, then, uh, you know, with, with no cost, if, that's, if that ever does happen, then, um, then you know, it's potentially uh, just a, a standard computer science strategy you know, if you've got that sort of uh, unlimited space to, um, to to let the artificial life processes, uh, you know, the survival of the fittest help you uh, create software. But that's a bit of a stretch. Well, I think the computing power is, is already here with regards to a lot of this stuff. It's just a matter of us kind of motivating algorithms that actively use the computer power in such a way that we can start exploring these issues. So 
have mean, you have you uh, have you followed the discussions about how uh, how much energy data centers are costing? Because uh, there's it, it's interesting the curve of of computer power is going up, but the ability to uh, to feed these things with electricity is is becoming an issue. And uh, there was uh, I, I was listening to an IT conversations discussion about this some time ago, and uh, there's there's two curves going to collide. Quite soon, you know, in in a, in a couple of years, there's just so much computing uh, demanded that uh, that it's it's going to be energy that's going to be the main issue for all the data centers. So I think when when you get that sort of uh, competition for uh, for resources, then you'll uh, you really find out what is uh, granted computing time and what isn't. You know, it's going to be uh, the energy costs can't really be ignored. They're they're just rising. You know, they're rising at a remarkable rate because the amount we use computing is rising at a remarkable rate. So there's there's going to be a wall hit quite soon, energy-wise. Apparently, have you have you played? I don't I don't like necessarily talking about this specifically, but have you played with the Intel Atom at all? The Intel Atom, no. It's a, a very low energy processor. I don't want this to seem like a, an ad for the Intel Atom, but I mean, I I've had some experience in recent weeks with it, and basically it can survive with with no power for an extraordinary amount of time. I mean, my sense is, whilst you're right, I mean, the, the problem is, as with kind of clunker cars, that cheap, mass-produced, everyday accessible computing is incredibly expensive in terms of energy, and the kind of call centers or what have you that are consuming all this power through computing are using the least efficient computers possible. That's without question. But I think in terms of the actual computational costs associated with an energy use and these kind of things, there are un- the atom is becoming more widespread, certainly in the U.S. I mean, it's available very, very cheaply. With regards to companies like Intel, they're addressing this for those of us that want to be interested in, in this kind of issue. The main problem is, like the propagation of a wide variety of things, we have no control over you know what decisions are made by uh, corporate entities that don't factor into these kind of considerations. The interesting thing associated with what you say in terms of extreme energy use is this is something I've tried to do my own little bit for you know for the past few years, and I think there are actual solutions that are coming out, and you know have had something to do with artificial life in terms of trying to. Uh, turn computers into hair dryers and then turn them into light fans and now turn them into things that can exist without power or with very, very low power consumption. But I agree with you. I mean, the main problem is that we're actively producing all these machines that aren't like that, that already exist, that are filling barns and, uh, you know, Bruce Damer's home and these kind of things. And no, I mean, I, I agree fundamentally, but I think artificial life can also be part of the solution as well as part of the problem. Well, there's that uh, that you, you mentioned, you know, all the computers uh, on the client side, you could say, but, uh, but you don't see atom processors taking over the data centers quite yet. But I think in terms of cost, the cost efficiency of these kind of things is, is getting to the point where they will hopefully over the, the, the next few years. And I mean, my hope is that these things will uh, fix themselves, although there's absolutely yeah, no indication through, through the, commerce that this the, will occur. The thing, that you have to, the thing that you have to keep in mind is the, uh, the, the exponential uh, growth in our hunger for computation. Certainly.
And I wanted to conclude the show with, with Eric's discussion associated with crediting, but particularly uh, your recent interaction with Larry Yeager and the discourse associated with crediting and Polyworld. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, Tom, Darwin at Home, of course, is a, is a motion evolver. It's a race program. We've got a... Uh We've got a race now in Critterding, and I was thinking if we could put uh, if we could put off off-screen races at the initial stages of a of an eco sim run in Critterding, so that we uh, only insert critters that move at a certain speed, it might increase the the interest of the of the open opening game somewhat. I don't know if that's uh, something like what you were thinking about. These things used to used to have discrete movement instructions and now uh of course they have to learn to move in the world's physics so it's uh like they have to play a tape certainly but in terms of your communication with Larry Yeager and I mean we tried to get him on last uh, last boat live he couldn't yes. make it he but you had some be. communication afterwards about crediting what 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 has that discussion yielded well, we weren't able to get it compiled on Darwin unfortunately and there's a windows version now we just over the last few days we got about 500 downloads from three threads on 4chan it was pretty exciting people really thought it was interesting um i think it's very interesting critterding i think is ahead of its time like uh, software from from the 20 teens i think and uh, as cpus and gpus become more powerful the uh the outcome of that kind of program will uh more and more impressive in less and less time. You can watch your cycles go to a truly novel process with that software. It's uh, it's quite compelling. We have a lot of new users now. I think uh, I think anyone with an A Life app should be uh, telling everyone. Everyone. Yes, I mean it's spoken like a true artificial life hobbyist, Eric. But I think the interesting thing is how do we? This was the the publicity component of the show. Do you, I mean, do you agree with me that the way is to kind of construct demographics to go through it through kind of thinking of getting new users almost like an artificial life simulation that you have to optimize for? Or do you think it's just a matter of putting it out there and people will come? Yeah, you know, if you have minimal documentation just so that the, uh, just so that the, the settings are visible and people can uh, get an idea of what level of customization they can have how far the model goes they can uh they can visualize possibilities then and uh be drawn in by their own imagination in terms of your own interest in crediting i mean you ca- you came to it as someone who was interested in artificial life who had a background looking at a number of, of different simulations what particularly captivated you about crediting and do you think it's something that art- other artificial life developers could could put out in their own projects to get folks such as yourself involved I thought it was a, a good project. I can't run Polyworld, and uh, Achilles was kind of a follow-up to Polyworld with memory leaks. Apparently, those creatures had vision as well, and uh, the ability to change their color, so they could have started to communicate, but they never did. Critterding is something that came after Achilles. is still in development and very much in the same philosophy, especially initially when it was cubes adhered to a two-dimensional grid, but now with the addition of physics, it can... Uh, used for hill climbing. I would like to see water in there because it's a superlative locomotion evolver. We see a locomotion evolve long before we see the neural nets start to encode the, the game rules of the place. So 
And this is the point really I was making with regards to procedural movement is that there is something that's sub-intelligent that fundamentally is, is reactive and allows for survival in changing environments. And I, I agree with you. I think artificial life simulations need to include at least two different kind of qualities of surface, one being on the easiest level, you know, something that is solid and one being something that is water-like or aqueous. I mean, I think this is... Yes, I would like to see that aquatic life and beach life and transitional forms, amphibians. It would be amazing. So, I mean, you're, you're really echoing both parts of, of tonight's show in terms of both the procedural movement component and also the, the publicity. As, as artificial life, you know, people who are starting a simulation... If they're looking at creating websites, if they're looking at getting folks such as yourself involved, do you think a simple SourceForge site is all you need? You've talked a little bit about IRC chat as well and this kind of interaction that you got with the crediting community. Can you talk a little bit about that and how important it is for you as a, as a high-level advanced user? Yeah, IRC, you know, is very good for a software community. You can uh, do a lot of rapid troubleshooting and that sort of thing over IRC. So I certainly encourage everyone who uses Crediting to come to pound Crediting on irc.freenode.net. It's a uh, it's a good thing. I'm I'm on the Darwin at Home mailing list and a, uh, a web forum for Ken Stoffer's Evolve 4.0. But IRC, I think, is the best. I haven't heard from Ken Stoffer recently. How how is that project going? It's okay. There hasn't been a new Evolve in a while. I guess over a year, but. Uh, it's pretty good. Lots of people are submitting species to this forum and things like that. Terrific. But as, as you describe it, I mean, the immediacy of IRC, particularly with regards to technical troubleshooting, I mean, when, I, when Pedro was an active developer on Noble 8, we used chat clients frequently to go through code and just give code explanations and also, as you say, with regards to debugging and possible assistance. So, I mean, I've got to concur with that. But also, Gerald, you talk about... Darwin at Home originally having a chat client, was this something that you would get kind of user developer feedback from as well? Oh, well, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was real time as well. It was, uh, it was a very small group of people at the time, but, um, but it was really useful to uh, you know, have a collective experience in the game and then afterwards uh, do a post-mortem and, and figure out what, you know, how, how it went and then try and find some improvements. Definitely uh, something that I'm going to be including again in the online version I'm building now. The, uh, the, the couple times you've mentioned land and water, and I was able to uh, get that uh, functioning this week on uh, on the, the Darwin at Home developing uh, sort of spherical universe. And I've got land and water. Uh, uh, the the creatures actually, it's it's really funny. If you in my test program, I'm dropping them, and sometimes I drop them on the coastline, and you can tell that they're. Uh, the one end bounces off the uh, the land, and, and the whole thing ends up in the water. So it looks quite realistic, despite the fact that it's really, really you know simplified. It still looks it has some uh, some realistic features, which are really entertaining. Terrific! And I'd like to encourage you to put out a YouTube clip if if you can do it of, of the environment. I'd be interested to see that, and I think a number of BioLive listeners would also be interested in seeing this uh, this preliminary environment change for Darwin at home. It sounds very exciting. Yeah, I hope uh, maybe maybe if uh, YouTube would uh, as soon as, as soon as it's all ready for uh, for for uh, you know public consumption. I'll say you wouldn't even give a teaser for the biota community. Well, it's not that easy, I think, to create a, a movie from an OpenGL thing unless I'm not informed. 
can't you just do screen? I mean, the way I do it with Noblay, part of it is, is OpenGL is just take a screen capture program and run the screen capture program over the top. It doesn't produce a perfect, you know, frame for frame, but at least it gives some overview of the environment. I thought of doing mm-hmm. that for, to make some critterding movies. Well, I'd encourage both of you to do it. I mean, I'm doing it sporadically with regards to Noble Ape, putting it on YouTube and occasionally through uh, the Ape Reality podcast, but I certainly get a lot of positive feedback associated with doing that. And I mean, Gerald, historically, you've done that with Darwin at Home and gotten amazing feedback, including the Boing Boing link through from that. Well, I'm definitely intent upon doing it. I mean, one of the things that I hope to build into Darwin at Home sort of standard is the the ability to generate these movies. So I'm I'm probably going to be able to, you know, once it gets rolling a little bit, I'll be able to uh, publish, uh, you know, large numbers of them. I've already got the whole um, script generation process working. So uh, I have one uh, program I play around with sometimes uh, where I've, uh, you know, I've just created a record button so I can just say record and then it uh, records scripts and then I uh, render them as images and uh, turn the image sequences into a movie. It's it's become a very easy process so eventually I'll be doing a lot of them. Terrific. And Dick Gordon in the chat is asking about crediting uh, in terms of the spelling. It's C-R-I-T-T-E-R-D-I-N-G. And for folks interested, check out the show notes on biota.org slash podcast from the last show for links through to, to all these sites, including crediting. So, Eric, we're, we're rounding up the show. We've got a little bit over time, but I'd like to thank you for participating. Gerald, do you, are, you going to, uh, are you going to Canada in any time in the near future? No, my next uh, trip is actually uh, at Christmas. Um, between Christmas and New Year's, I'm going to New York City, and I'm actually going to meet the, uh, the originator of Tensegrity, Ken Nelson. Wow. There is an artificial life community in, in New York City, so I'd encourage you to, uh, to look on the Biota Community site on Facebook and see other folks who are interested in New York. I certainly have quite a, uh, quite a number of correspondents in the New York area who I'm sure would, uh, would be really interested in getting together with you for, uh, for uh, a pint or a coffee or something equivalent to discuss uh, Darwin at home and their own particular project. So, I mean, if you're in the New York area... Um, Please announce it on a bio live in the future, and I'm sure we can bring bring more folks together. Uh, but Eric, I mean, we talked last uh, last bio live about Biota Five, and I think it's a something which is not it's coming up in I guess a year and a bit's time. But uh, Dick Gordon is just about to start. Well, actually, at the end of October, he and uh, Natalie and I'm not sure whether the dogs are coming too, but they are travelling on a a road trip going down to Bruce Damer's farm, spending a a month on Bruce Damer's farm and then travelling south to spend a a month with William R. Buckley as well. The hope is that Steve Grant will come over from Flagstaff, Arizona, and we'll have a a mini-meeting here in Las Vegas sometime over that period. I'm not sure whether it'll be November or December, but I'm I'm really looking forward to meeting Steve Grant. I've, I've never met Steve Grant. We've had, obviously, extensive correspondence and extensive communication on both live and other other such forums, so it'll be wonderful having potentially Bruce Damer as well, Dick Gordon and Steve Grand all together here in Vegas, and certainly uh, Biota podcasts will be recorded and potentially even some video too. So I think no matter where we go, uh, we can find artificial life and like-minded folk, and I certainly would encourage people who travel, and I've done this uh, progressively through the community, if you're going to a particular area, 
please get in contact with me, Tom, at Noble8.com, and I can put you in contact with at least uh, a couple, if not a dozen other folk who are artificial life interested or are developing projects actively because the community extends the world over. So I'd like to thank you both for, uh, for participating this evening. Gerald, do you think we've covered the two topics? Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, I mean, we, what we could use is somebody who, uh, who can give us the reality of, of uh, you know, procedural in the context of sport or something. That would be cool. Well, yes. I mean, I think uh, certainly having, having Jeffrey on, I mean, whilst Jeffrey didn't work on sport, he worked in games companies prior to sport and was certainly the kind of founding father associated with the kind of procedural movement that I'm uh, discussing primarily and also some of the stuff that I'm uh, developing in Noble 8 currently. So it would have been wonderful to have... Uh, to have Jeffrey on to, to talk to that very point. But uh, next, Bio Live, October 16th at 8pm Pacific. I know Gerald has been waiting for this for a number of years. We will have on Tom Ray, and he will be discussing 20 years of Tierra and a wide variety of other subjects. Gerald, I mean, if you can't make the show, what question would you want to ask Tom Ray? Yeah, I'll make the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's a promise, I guess. And Eric, I mean, in terms of your viewing of Tierra, what, what, what kind of question would you want to ask Tom Ray? I've used DaVita an awful lot. I don't, know, I don't know what I would ask, though, at this point. And the interesting thing with Tom Ray is he vents very, very well into the kind of leery consciousness, kind of, uh, I don't even know what it's called now in terms of that kind of broader element. He certainly is an active speaker in a number of these consciousness forums, salons, and, and conferences. I would want to get him, I would want to put him on the spot and get him trying to talk about the future. I, I think that's going to be a large part of what we do, uh, because, I mean, obviously, Tom Ray has been very active in the academic component of the artificial life community up until the present day as well, and he probably has some amazing insights in terms of the way that will turn for the future. But speaking on that as well, we will have Mark Badeau on October 30th, 8pm Pacific, continuing the discussion when he was last on, but also really talking about what's happening currently with regards to artificial life industry, what's happening with artificial life in academia, how can the International Society of Artificial Life get involved with academia and industry, and really what is an almost kind of bleak prognosis associated with artificial life and industry, how that can be turned around and what Mark Bedeau's particular thinking is, because I've seen some stuff coming from Mark recently that predicts things very rosy in 10 years' time, but I'm interested really in two four and six years' time with regards to the artificial life community. And my hope also is to have Justin Lyon on sometime. Um, and next weekend in particular, I may record a, an informal bio live or two. I will certainly announce that through the Biota Conversations mailing list. I would encourage people who listen to Biota Live to join the Biota Conversations mailing list because you get to have a wide variety of discussions on a wide variety of topics that we don't even touch on in Biota Live. So thanks to folks for listening in, and thanks to Gerald and Eric for participating this evening. Thanks, Tom.